Welcome to the QMC Board and Collar, news and thought-provoking discussion for today's emergency medical service professional. The Board and Collar podcast series is brought to you by QuickMed Claims, a national leader in emergency medical transportation revenue cycle management and reimbursement consulting. Now, your host for today's Board and Collar podcast from QMC's business development team, Chuck Humphrey. Thanks to everybody that's attending today. I really do appreciate it. Um, So uh, let me tell you, this is definitely, as Gary said, we're calling this the ambulance billing nerd subject. (laughs) Um, There's no two ways around it, Uh, but uh, I'm excited because I got to tell you, I still do receive uh, a fair amount of questions as does Gary and others in our operations department um, uh, about the fee schedule. And there's still uh, sometimes a good amount of confusion about just how the payments are computed and those kind of things. So when Gary and I talked about this, we thought, well, that's a good subject for an old guy like myself that's been around ambulance billing for a while uh, to dig into and just go back and uh, take a look at what this thing is. So uh, we'll uh, just get into it today and uh, set up the agenda a little bit. Um, we will look at, um, uh, of course, we had our intro. We'll look at the history. So before we go to what it is and what it's all about, we got to go back and find out where we came from. So how do we get from there to here with a fee schedule? We'll talk about uh, in past days there were billing methods. Some of you may remember that. Also something that was passed called inherent reasonableness. And uh, we'll talk about that because I still get questions about that. Then we'll move into how the fee schedule was implemented. Uh, We're now in uh, about 17 years of a fee schedule, believe it or not, but it seems like it was just yesterday. So we'll talk about implementation and some legislation uh, of how it all came about and uh, how the Medicare ambulance fee schedule was born, uh, and then talk about some of the when and what with levels of service. Then we'll move into the formula about how to calculate the ambulance fee schedule and talk about something called the ambulance inflation factor or the AIF. You're going to be EIEIO'd today, guys. There's a lot of different uh, uh, agenda where we're talking about RVUs and CFs and AIFs. And so we'll go through all those alphabet soup uh, items. And then we'll look at the add-on payments. We'll talk uh, briefly about something called sequestration. And then we'll get our crystal balls out and we'll look at what the future may bring Uh, for payments from Medicare for the days ahead of us. So first things first, I want to bust some myths. If I can say it, we'll do it. We want to myth bust, okay? So let's take a look at some things right off the bat that um, often confuse us. So first of all, always keep in mind that Medicare reimbursement is for transportation and not for treatment. And this is important to understand, at least in today's environment, that we get paid for ambulance transportation when we physically place a patient in our ambulance and transport them from one place to another. So it is not payment for treatment. Secondly, mileage payment is for loaded miles only. So this means when the patient is in the ambulance and on the way to an approved destination, We do not get paid for putting the garage door up, driving to the scene of the emergency. We do not get paid for when we leave a facility such as a hospital and return to our base. We only get paid 
for loaded miles. And again, this is for Medicare. Uh, there may be some situations with some payers that you do get paid for round trip, but in this case, and for most cases, only loaded miles. The third thing I wanna point out is that we cannot apply for a change in any individual payment levels uh, on the fee schedule. So once the fee schedule came out and was part of our landscape, the payment levels are now set in stone each year. There are adjustments each year annually, but you cannot apply for change. In days past, we could, no longer is that the case. And I just had a question about that, oh, say about two months ago from a fairly new client that asked, well, can I put in for an adjustment? The answer to that is definitely no. Fourthly, we're, uh, Medicare fee for service. Now we're talking about traditional Medicare. This is the Medicare administrative contractor that pays on behalf of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, which pays on behalf of Congress. The Medicare rates, Medicare fee for service must follow the fee schedule. So once that fee schedule is out, when you submit a claim and the patient has the traditional, what we consider the regular Medicare coverage or what we call fee for service, fee for service follows that fee schedule. However, Medicare Advantage plans, the HMOs and the PPOs do not have to follow that schedule necessarily for non-emergency payments. They must follow it for emergencies. They are not required to follow it for non-emergencies. In fact, if you are not potentially a participating provider of some of these HMOs and PPOs, it could be that they won't pay you at all. That's a whole other seminar in itself, but I throw that out there because there is some misunderstanding that because it's a quote-unquote Medicare plan, they must pay me for non-emergency based on the fee schedule, and that may not be the case. It could be, but not a given. And then finally, the last myth we want to kind of uh, bust here for you is that Medicare fee-for-service pays on a 14-day payment floor when the claim is considered clean. Now that is uh, if it's not flagged for review, if it's uh, re additional information is not requested, Medicare fee for service accepts a clean claim and then pays within a 14-day window. Medicare Advantage plans are not held to that payment floor. So if you have any kind, again, of Medicare HMO, PPO as a patient, and you uh, use the ambulance, and then we, on behalf of the ambulance here at QMC, build a claim to the Medicare Advantage plan. It does not mean, and it's highly unlikely, that you, as the ambulance provider or supplier, will see a payment within that two-week floor, like you see with fee-for-service. So this is something that when uh, we started to see a lot of the Medicare Advantage plans become the choice for patients, um, those of us that go back 20, 25 years and were used to being paid within two weeks of submitting a claim suddenly saw our payment window stretch out more like a commercial insurance. Uh, so that's important because we do get questions about why. Well, if it's a Medicare, why am I not seeing that uh, uh, payment in a faster amount of time? And they do have the right to pay under that commercial insurance that administers that HMO and PPO have the right to draw out that payment floor longer than what the fee-for-service uh, contractor must pay. Okay. 
So now that we busted the miss, let's talk about how we got to a Medicare fee schedule. Let's look at some history here. So prior to 2002, there was no Medicare ambulance fee schedule. Uh, those of you that can see my screen, you're seeing our illustrious squad 51 from the show Emergency. Uh, when Gary and I were kids, we were glued in front of the TV watching that, uh, that program. Actually, Gary, you were already on the street by that point. I was a little younger. I'm, 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 I'm a spring chicken here. But, uh, but anyhow, uh, uh, prior to 2002, um, ambulance payments were based on your history of billing. And, and we'll talk about that. So pre-2002, prior to the omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act of 1989, there was no fee schedule. Then at that point, the Balanced Budget Act of 1997 came into play. And the rates prior to that, though, were based on billing history and or the prep and filing of something called an inherent reasonableness request. Now, back when I started, I actually began in the ambulance billing industry. Uh, I've been an EMT for 30 years but I began in the ambulance billing about 20 years ago. So right about uh, uh, 1997, about 22 years ago. And um, that was when the act was passed. However, it took five more years to become a fee schedule. So prior to that, your payment rates were based on the history of how you build. And then if you felt that your costs had gone up in some fashion, you could um, make a request and basically put in a cost report, not the cost report we're talking about that's about to come into play next year, but you could file an appeal and make a case for that your costs have risen to the point that your current rate of reimbursement was not covering your expenses. And then uh, there were actually some, um, uh, some consultants who were doing that work. Uh, I remember uh, uh, back in the day, I was involved in uh, a few of those in helping ambulance services uh, make their case. And many times, if you filed that and you provided the right amount of information, um, the um, uh, CMS would come back. In those days, it was the Healthcare Finance Administration, or HICFA, we called it. They would come back and typically grant uh, an increase, and sometimes that was a fair amount of money that you would get, okay? Uh, obviously, that went away when in 2002, there was a five-year beginning of phase-in of the fee schedule. So once in 1997, the Balanced Budget Act called for the fee schedule, and we were the last healthcare discipline did not have a Medicare fee schedule. So when the ambulance um, was... Uh, mandated to have a fee schedule, they decided uh, based on a process called negotiated rulemaking, which was basically uh, the stakeholders in the industry getting together and talking about how to properly implement. They decided rather than to uh, throw the switch on a fee schedule all at once, they would blend the old payment rate with the new payment rate. So what we saw was a beginning over five years of the old and the new. So the first year uh, was a um, 20, uh, an 80% of the old and 20% of the new. The second year in, it was a 60-40 uh, percentage split. 
by year three, it was exactly half. You got half of what you were paid prior to fee schedule, half of what you uh, got under the new fee schedule, what was called for, for your area. Then it moved to a 4060, a 2080, and finally then a full implementation of the fee schedule followed that phase in period. And then at the same time, we saw service levels being defined beyond what we typically were being paid for before, and uh, that will demonstrate on the next slide. So prior to the fee schedule, there were basically BLS emergency and non-emergency, ALS emergency and non, and then of course, if you were an air provider, you had a fixed wing uh, approval and a rotary wing approval with a mileage payment, either air, which was a statutory mile, or ground, which was a loaded mile. With the inception of the fee schedule, we saw a few more new levels come into play. So there was a new definition of emergency versus non, and for tense and purposes of this presentation, defined emergency as your 911 uh, potential life-threatening emergency as determined by a 911 center or an equivalent in areas without 911. In those days, there were still many pockets of rural areas that did have, not have 911 coverage. That's pretty much resolved itself. We're seeing, uh, I would say, Gary, probably a 99%, if not more, 911 coverage throughout the United States today. But they allowed for those pockets if the call would come in to a seven digit number that was determined to be a third party or public service access point. Um, so you had your basic life support, non-emergency and emergency, your ALS, advanced life support. Uh, and again, even advanced life support was kind of evolving at that point. Uh, that changed with the fee schedule. So we had the BLS again, non-emergency and emergency, but we added a second level of advanced life support to that list. So this was, uh, again, from the negotiated rulemaking process. Um, the uh, argument from the provider standpoint was, from the industry, was we have these calls that are traumas, codes, or very serious calls, where we're expending so much time, resource, energy, drugs, supplies, um, you name it, equipment, that we need a higher level of payment. And um, the government said, okay, we agree with you. We see uh, that that's an issue. And they allowed for a second level of payment, which was the ALS-2 level. And um, defined quickly, this is when three medications are infused via IV pusher bolus or any one of these procedures if attempted and or successful or even unsuccessful, um, are instituted as part of the call, automatically makes it an ALS-2 level of billing. And that would be cardioversion, chest decompression, uh, drilling an IO or an intraosseous line, inserting a central venous line, initiating a manual defibrillation, or an endotracheal intubation. So that level was added, and there is a, a level difference of payment between ALS-1 and ALS-2, which is determined by the fee schedule calculations, which 
we'll get into in just a minute. Following that, there was also the addition of the specialty care transport. And that was a transport from one facility to another, limited to uh, facility to facility transfers, where the patient has some uh, either piece of equipment or an infusion uh, that is um, running for the patient at the time of the transport that is not able to be monitored or administered by the street level of paramedic without additional sanctioned training. So this would be a critical care type of paramedic or a um, critical care nurse or um, and now we have nurse practitioners or uh, physician's assistants that ride along with the crew and are required because there's something running or some equipment piece attached that is not within uh, local state uh, protocol for the paramedic without higher training to administer. And then the idea was because that cost the ambulance service more dollars, um, Medicare would allow for that additional payment. So we had those additions of those um, levels of service added to the list of things that were on the fee schedule for payment. Okay, so that's where we came from. Now it's time for all the alphabet soup stuff. This is where we get into the math. Now I gotta tell you guys, math was never one of my favorite subjects. My favorite subject was gym, but well, that's another story, okay? <coughs> Excuse me. So let's get into how the fee schedule is calculated. So first of all, one of the things that the fee schedule had to do, and I'm losing my voice here, folks, as you can hear. Gary, jump in here just a second. Or no problem at all. So one of the things that the fee schedule had to do was basically define a relative value unit. And this is listed, as you, as you see here, for not only rotor uh, and fixed wing, but also for the ground side as well, too. You ready, Chuck? Yes, thank you. Just had to take a quick drink there. Yeah, uh, no my problem. apologies. <laughs> uh, my apologies, everyone. Um, so the idea of the fee schedule was to come up with a base level of um, weighting the different types of levels of service. So what um, the negotiating rulemaking process came out with was there were three base levels that would be valued at a basic one, number one, this is ground level service. BLS non-emergency, rotary wing air, and fixed wing air. So each of those levels carry a weighting of 1.0. Now, as we move along in the various types of levels of service, uh, we grow to a complexity, whereas there's a weighting added to each of the different levels. So um, BLS emergency, was scored basically at 1.6. So what the, the government wound up saying was, if BLS non-emergency is your basic level, just a transport, probably don't pull out a lot of equipment, then a BLS emergency would be 0.6 higher than a BLS non because you're probably doing some basic level of treatment and care, oxygen, splinting, uh, basic under the definition of a basic life support. An ALS non-emergency was scored at 1.2. Now that seems odd on first take 
you would think, well, if, if an ALS is higher than a BLS, why is it 1.6 to 1.2? Well, again, because of the non-emergency tag there. So again, you may be transporting, but you're not doing the kind of level of care even as much as a BLS emergency. I know those of us that are providers, that's probably debatable, but it figured into a weighting of 1.2. Now, as we move to the ALS emergency level one, you can see the difference between the base level and the level one was a 1.9. Now we're getting into complexity. It makes sense. Noted that the ALS 2 and what we just talked about for the complexity of the level of care for that critically ill or injured patient. Uh, so basically what they weighted it was a uh, ALS 2 is two times the complexity of a BLS non-emergency transport plus another three quarters. So that's weighted at 2.75 with a specialty care at 3.25. And that is the highest rating of any of the payment levels of service on the fee schedule. And then in New York State, where um, New York providers, ALS providers, are able to bill for intercepts because of the law that will not allow fire departments to bill for their services, they allow a paramedic intercept weighting of 1.75. So now that we have the relative weights of the different types of service, Obviously, since this is a fee schedule for payment, we must move over and apply a dollar amount. So at the beginning, they arrived at, through negotiated rulemaking, a reasonable pricing for each of the levels of service, which has now each year been adjusted and has grown to the following levels. And those of you that are viewing this presentation, you'll see those levels on the screen. So for 2019, a ground ambulance basic dollar called the conversion factor or the CF is $229.91. So the government saying a ground ambulance transport without any conversion within the formula is worth a value of $229.91. We'll look soon how that figures into the calculations. Ground mileage loaded, and now as of 2011, so since 2011, we're not rounding anymore. We're actually using to the nearest tenth. That base value is $7.40. A rotary wing ambulance helicopter, base is $3,119.83. Fixed wing ambulance aircraft, is $3,627.27. And then rounding out the list of conversion factors is the air mileage value, which is per statute mile of $8.85. So note again, we have the weighting back with the RVU, and now we have a conversion factor into dollars using a dollar amount. So the next thing we have to throw into this equation of our alphabet soup here is the ambulance inflation factor. So one of the things that came out of the process in developing the fee schedule was the talk and discussion successfully about inflation. So it was fine to put a fee schedule up, but now what happens as time goes on and inflation becomes part of our economy, which every year factors into our lives uh, whether it's spending or 
uh, costs of doing what we do in, in our everyday living, there had to be an adjustment for that. So the government said, okay, we're going to use a formula to calculate an annual ambulance inflation factor or the AIF. The AIF is computed using this formula. It's computed using a CPIU. Now, this is a government uh, value that is determined each year and is basically a reflection of inflation. So this is the consumer price index for urban dwellers. So since a large majority of us in America live in an urban setting and not a rural setting, we're taking into account how much uh, it costs to live over the last year, ending each year in June, to live in an urban area and what the inflation effect of that is. At one time, the AIF was simply equal to this CPIU value. Uh, several years ago, it was decided by the government that they needed to add a efficiency factor, which they call the multi-factor productivity value. And this is non-farm productivity running on a 10-year average, ending again each June. So for the CPIU, we're looking back at the last year. For the multi-factor productivity value, we're looking at the last 10 years. And so what the government said was, look, it's not fair that you guys get a bump for inflation every year because you become more efficient as time goes on. You get new equipment, you get uh, um, uh, newer trucks, you have more fuel efficient uh, vehicles, you have uh, equipment that doesn't cost as much or doesn't uh, take you as much to learn to use. Um, you guys are out there right now scratching your head saying, are you kidding me? Well, yeah, but this is the government, guys. And uh, also part of this was this multi-factor productivity could now make the AIF, AIF a negative value. So twice since its inception, we have seen where we actually calculate less money into the Medicare fee schedule than we did the previous year. And this was never the case. It was controlled by law that it could never be negative. If it were negative uh, at first, it would be a zero value. Several years ago, they changed that and allowed that to be a negative value. And again, it was saying, well, if you're more efficient, that offsets inflation. And so, um, We'll take some money away. Uh, so the AIF calculates into the base rate value of the calculation, and uh, we'll demonstrate that on the next slide. So to come up with the base payment formula, we're going to take the relative value unit, multiply it by the conversion factor. So here's where the AIF comes in. That conversion factor that we talked about back uh, about three slides ago is weighted by the AIF each new year. So this is another, I'll, I'll do a mini myth bust here. Uh, when we get the conversion factor each year, I'll have sometimes have a discussion with some folks in the industry and they'll say, oh, we're going to get 1.6% more money next year. Well, that isn't always the case. That 1.6 or 2.4 or whatever that AIF is, isn't an automatic adjustment in the amount of money. It's an adjustment in the formula to come up with 
the conversion factor. So we're going to take the relative value unit of weighting for each of those levels. We're going to multiply it by the conversion factor dollar amount. And we're going to come up with something we call the base rate. And then we're going to multiply that and adjust it by something called the geographic practice cost index. So we're going to take into account costs to provide ambulance services, costs to, in, in, in geographic areas, which are computed by 70% of labor-related costs and 30% of non-labor-related costs. Those two combine to come up with the GPCI. So this is why some years we see the conversion factor being a 1.6, but we don't see 1.6 percent extra money in some locations because there has been adjusted an adjustment ge uh, geographically for costs and that's why you have a different fee schedule in California 30 of them by the way different areas versus a different fee schedule in Pennsylvania and you have something called charge class areas so the theory is is that example here in Pennsylvania it costs us more to run an ambulance service, say, in Philadelphia than it does in my beautiful area here in rural Danville. So we have one set of GPCI calculations, and there's another set of GPCI calculation for the Philly area because the costs are more to operate in that very urban area. And then we see a differential in the payment based on the geography of where we are located. So let's quick recap. I don't want to lose you in all the alphabet, okay? So we had a relative value unit of weighting. We converted it into money using the conversion factor. We adjust that all annually for inflation and efficiency using the AIF. And then we modify it by local geography taking into account costs. But we're not done. All of that then floats into what we call the add-on or the bonus payments. So once we arrive at that fee schedule, see here's what happened. Not too long after the inception of the fee schedule, folks started to notice that they were receiving less than what they received under the old formula. That wasn't by design, however, a study that the uh, General Accounting Office of the government did soon after the inception of the fee schedule showed that there was a sizable underfunding of Medicare payments to the ambulance industry. None of us find that to be surprising. So they added a stopgap measure. Instead of fixing it, which they should have done back then, they said, okay, well, look, we're going to put a Band-Aid on it for a while. And that's basically what they did. So they used an add-on payment formula and said, okay, so in urban areas, we're going to give you an extra 2%. In rural areas, and this is determined, by the way, by the zip code of origin of the trip for each trip that you do for each transport. In a, in a rural zip code, we're going to do 3% more. And then out there in the hinterland, in super rural areas, and this is the lowest quartile or the lowest 25% of the, 
of all population density areas in the United States. We're going to give those guys 22.6% extra dollars, and we're going to calculate that and add that on to the Medicare fee schedule each year as it is uh, derived. So we have the uh, calculation we just went through, and then we add those add-on payments. Those add-on payments were extended for several years last year again, um, and we're due for them to be reconsidered in a few years. I think it's three more years. I think it was a five-year extension. Uh, in three more years, they're gonna, Congress is going to bring that up again, uh, which will tie to my future discussion uh, as we end the presentation. So kind of stay tuned to that and keep that in the back of your mind. But these add-on payments are part of what we do today. And then in addition to that, there's also a mileage bump to the rural and super rural providers a 50% extra mileage calculation and payment between the miles of 0.1 tenth of a mile, one tenth of a mile, and 17 miles of a transport gets an additional 50% payment. And then thereafter, 17.1 to whatever total amount of miles is billed on the trip from the transport, an additional 1% is added. So there is also a mileage addition in addition to the two, three, and 22.6% um, bonus payment that is added to the fee schedule. Now, I bet you think we're done, right? Or you're hoping we are. Well, guess what? We're not, because there's one more thing. It's hard to believe, but yes, there is one more part of this. And that's something called government sequestration. So back in 2011, there was a big standoff. I'm sure you can't believe there was any standoff in Congress because we don't have that today, right? Okay, so anyhow, there was a big standoff in Congress to try to force a balanced budget. So they wrote this little sequestration thing in thinking that it would never come to light. It was kind of dangling the carrot in front of the political nose. Well, guess what? They, they recessed that year went home for Christmas, and never dealt with this. So come 2011, every single Medicare payment, not just ambulance, but across the board, saw 2% of dollars deducted right off the top. Now, this also bled into defense spending, and it was a lot of, but this now is reality for us through 2027. It's law. So we just went through all those calculations, and I'm going to back up just a minute. Bear with me. Relative value unit of weighting. Throw in the dollar conversion factor. Adjust for inflation. Adjust for geography. Fix our mess by adding add-ons. But then take away, oh, and, and give us more miles and then take away 2% after we've already fixed it and admitted we didn't do a good job, eh, we'll just deduct 2% as well. So what I wanna caution folks, those of you that are providers and suppliers listening in, when you look at the fee schedule, just be reminded that from the fee for service carrier or the contractor, you only are paid 80%. The other 20% is paid by your Medigap or you pay that out of pocket. So when you look at that fee schedule, you're not getting that total payment from fee-for-service because you, 
when Medicare was incepted, it was the thought that if the patient bore a 20% responsibility, it would limit uh, utilization of services. Another fallacy, because we know that wasn't the case, but it was thought that if there was a 20% share on the cost, then people would use it judiciously, okay? So you're getting 80%. The other thing to re be reminded of is there are some of you that are located in states where the Medicaid program factors into this. So if you have an uh, elderly or disabled patient who also meets the income regulations to be a Medicaid patient, we call those the dual eligibles, in many states today, Medicaid does not pay that additional 20%. So you may only be seeing for those patients 80% of what the fee schedule says to begin with. Then on top of it, after all of that, we're going to deduct 2% more from the bottom line payment. So this is something to remember when you're doing your budgeting for the year and you're looking at your, your new dollars. Uh, be sure that you are calculating those factors into it. And I can tell you that this next year, uh, last year we saw a 2.3% uh, adjustment to the AIF. This year's AIF has just been announced within the last uh, few weeks. And uh, we're seeing a CPIU of 1.6%, an MFP of 0.7%. So that means that our AIF is going to be, who is brave enough to answer? We're watching. Anybody brave enough? 1.6.7. The AIF is going to be, oh, the suspense is killing me, Gare. So it's 0.9%. So that is going to be our factor this year. Um, so we're going to see that be part of the calculation for the new fee schedule. That will be released very soon. It's typically released sometime between now and the end of the year. Once that AIF is announced, um, something called the public use file is released, uh, which we uh, look for with bated breath here at QMC in order that we can begin calculating what the new approvals are. But again, just to be cautious as you're budgeting, when that final uh, dollar amount comes out on the published fee schedule, just remember there is going to be that either 80%, 20% share. You may not get the other 20, and there will definitely be a full 2% deduction off the bottom line of that expected calculated fee schedule amount. So what's coming up for the future as we roll this into the finish line here? Uh, first of all, uh, we just found out the final rule for data collection. Uh, Gary, uh, we're planning a upcoming webinar in about three, two to three weeks uh, on that subject. I know we've already talked about it, but uh, you want to just uh, pop in here a minute and do a quick uh, public service announcement on that? Sure, a quick PSA. So, uh, of course, the list has been published uh, through CMS of those uh, ground ambulance providers that are in the first round uh, for the cost data collection. Uh, hopefully all of you that are listening today uh, are aware of this. However, I have spoken to a number of individuals who 
are not aware. And I think that's my, my biggest worry, uh, that all of us need to be aware of this. So one of the things that we are doing here, proactive approach uh, for our clients and our friends, uh, is we are actually having a cost data collection webinar on the Monday, November 25th at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And our plan will be, and you can register through that through our website, quickmedclaims.com backslash education. Uh, and if you go to the speaker series, you'll see it there. Now, we plan on doing more of these um, as more information comes available. But I want everybody to understand the importance behind this and that this thing we've said it once before chuck this thing has teeth and uh, you have to stay on top of it it's nothing that can be done the weekend before it's due uh first rounders have more than ample time uh they're looking for data from 2020 which of course is yet to begin uh and it's not due to medicare till the end of may if i'm thinking correctly chuck of 21 that's correct so, uh, you know, I'm an old EMS guy, as is Chuck, and we came from the same school of procrastinators. And so this is one of those things that you cannot procrastinate. You have to work on it through the year to be ready for submission. So we're trying to keep our clients and friends updated. So I'd encourage those of attending today uh, to stay abreast of everything that's going on with cost data collection. Uh, tune into our webinars and we'll surely update you as we can here. Uh, we've got a number of people looking at this internally from uh, folks like myself and Chuck to our compliance department, uh, as well as our leadership team. And we recognize that we are going to have clients and friends who are going to be in this first round that just came out. And we've got a number of clients that are already on the list. So um, stay tuned, but stay abreast of that and be a sponge. Take in all the information you can, because if you don't, I'd hate to see anybody get penalized at the end of the day uh, for not submitting uh, good information. Yeah, and Gary, um, so the reason I threw this slide in here is because um, we're really hopeful that once Congress gets a view, CMS, and then reports to Congress, gets a good handle on what it costs for EMS to operate in the US, that this will spark a debate and potentially fix the fee schedule for good. Now, I know that some of you will probably saw that in the last week, uh, legislation was introduced to make the, the uh, add-on payments permanent. Um, that's a positive step, but it still doesn't really fix the root of the problem. And that is, is that we are underfunded by Medicare and at a fairly good clip. So um, what we're hoping is, is that this will open the eyes of our uh, leaders here in America, uh, that they need to recognize uh, a fair and equitable payment schedule uh, to fix this fee schedule so the gap in funding um, disappears. And uh, so it's important that um, you out there uh, prepare your cost report, uh, do it with good detail, uh, spend some time with that. Like Gary said, there is time. And certainly you want to avoid another deduction because that will be a 10% deduction if you don't report. So uh, we want to make sure that that on top of the 2% that we're losing and then the underfunding we lose doesn't factor in uh, for future payments. And then uh, beyond that, um, there's ET3. Uh, we're, we're going to see the first round of um, participants chosen for that. Um, that's a whole nother seminar in itself. But just the caution, 
that is not payment for treatment, no transport. Some people have uh, mis misidentified that and confused that. Um, it is either payment, it's payment both potentially for transporting to a facility other than a hospital or and or telemedicine treatment in the field, uh, remote treatment, which can be provided by ambulance provider, but maybe, maybe not. So um, it, it would be part of telehealth. Uh, it rolls into uh, those kind of services. And so those are some of the things. And then finally, uh, we fully expect, and this isn't going to happen tomorrow, but we're moving towards, the discussion is towards payment for quality and outcome-based payments. And so it may be someday that we're not paid for transportation, but that we're paid a different level of payment if uh, we work a code and there is return to ROSC and the patient gets up after catheterization and walks out of the hospital three days post-cardiac arrest. That may be one level of ambulance payment, and there may be another level if it's not successful. Well, we're going to see those kind of things probably on the horizon. Uh, how long down the road? Um, Gary, I don't know if we know that, but uh, certainly those are the things that are coming up that may change this whole fee schedule model completely uh, from what we know it uh, today. Yeah, Chuck, I think we, uh, you know, I, I, people are a little confused about all these things happening now. You know, for years, nothing was happening. And now all of a sudden, uh, there's a lot of good things. But in the end, especially with the cost data collection, the ET3, um, I think in the end, this could be, this hopefully will be good for our industry. But it's going to take some pain. And we're, you know, the first group's going through, the second group's going through. It's going to take some time. So everybody needs to be patient. Chuck, is there anything else you wanted to add? Yeah, um, so thanks everyone. Um, I've enjoyed this time. Um, I hope this uh, was enlightening and uh, uh, certainly give you something that you, a uh, tool that you can use when you're explaining to your administration. And uh, some of you may be municipal and have to explain these kind of things to, uh, you know, your selectmen or your, uh, your councilmen or whatever. And, uh, and we're hoping that this helps to uh, answer some of those questions we get. And uh, um, I've enjoyed my time together with you. So thanks so much for spending time with us. And Gary, as always, thanks for being that great moderator, my friend. <laughs> no problem at all. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day. And hey, be safe out there.